Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks with me, Claudine Fry, a partner based in London, heading up the global issues function within our geopolitical risk team. Just as the shipping industry was recovering from years of pandemic disruption, its vulnerability has been laid bare yet again. This time, the extra costs, delays and clogged berths are compounded by destroyers, drones and a higher octane geopolitical tension, which has triggered a bombardment of Houthi sites in Yemen by a US-led operation. Growing insecurity in the Red Sea is a reminder that geopolitics underpins global trade and can threaten as easily as uphold it. Businesses need to be paying attention and not just to the near-term risk. This is what we'll be unpacking in this episode of The Global Insight. With me today are two of our maritime experts, Director Cormac McGarry, based in Paris, and researcher Aaron Kennedy, who is here with me in London. Hi, Cormac. Thanks for joining. Hi, Claudine. And Aaron, glad to have you with me in London. Great to be here, Claudine. So a series of attacks by Houthi militants on maritime targets has prompted some of the world's best-known companies to reroute the transit of goods and the launch of an international US-led military operation in the Red Sea over the past few weeks. I've been struck by the wording used by US and UK militaries to describe and explain their presence in the area and the way it is so explicitly being linked to the protection of global commerce. Cormac, particularly for those of us who are not maritime experts. Can you, first of all, explain to us what makes the Red Sea so significant and events there so sensitive? Look, we don't want to overstate what's happening here. Um, despite what some media media headlines have said, uh, the Red Sea is not closed. It's still open for business, albeit at relatively high risk. Um, about 12% of global trade passes through the Red Sea in order to get through uh, the Suez Canal, 30% of global container volume goes through there. So containers, um, they're kind of the linchpin of consumer trade in the world. So all that stuff um, that you use day to day, the microphone I'm speaking into right now, the laptop or the phone that you're listening to this podcast on, uh, the toys you bought your kids for Christmas. Um, if you're sat in Europe, I can guarantee you that that got to you by a container ship carrying it from Asia to Europe. So if you're going to disrupt the Red Sea, you're potentially making it go an extra 6,000 kilometers, which means um, potentially two weeks more uh, sailing time, which comes with a lot of costs. And ultimately, those costs will get passed on to consumers. Um, just to wrap up where we're at with the Red Sea right now, there's a lot of statistics out there. Like You can... Massage the statistics on the Red Sea right now based on very different methodologies. Uh, some of the best uh, statistics I've seen come from Lloyd's List Intelligence, uh, which uh, at their latest count are saying that there's about a 28% decrease in overall traffic in the Red Sea, which is very, very significant, but it's far from the Red Sea being closed, right? Uh, what's important, 60% of the container traffic that goes through the Red Sea appears to be diverting. And that that is significant because that is the consumer trade that we just mentioned between Asia and Europe. Very importantly, tankers and bulk carriers are unaffected. A uh, bulk carrier is, as opposed to a container ship, it, it carries huge volumes of one specific good, let's say like wheat or coal. Uh, tankers carry huge volumes of singular um, gaseous or liquid cargoes. So that's where our oil and gas comes from. And it's important to state that um, diversions for tankers and bulk carriers are are really minimal. It's really containers uh, where we're seeing the most disruption, and that can largely be attributed to um, the actual incidents that we've seen on the water. 
And of course, the possibility of our goods costing more is particularly sensitive at the moment with inflation persistently high, although growing hopes that it as it is, is coming slowly under control and that perhaps interest rates, particularly in the West, will start to come down. Talk us through, Aaron, exactly what sort of incidents have actually taken place that have prompted some significant rerouting decisions over the past few weeks. So, Claudine, all of this started with the hijack on the 19th of November of an Israeli-owned car carrier. Many listeners to this podcast will have seen a rather dramatic video of a Houthi helicopter approaching an underway vessel, Houthi rebels boarding it and detaining the ship and its 25 crew members. This was the first confirmed Houthi use of a helicopter for targeting underway vessels, a very technically difficult operation to pull off and was really a sign of both the intent and capability of the Houthis to disrupt shipping in the Red Sea. Following that, we've seen a series of missile and drone attacks launched from Houthi-controlled territory. The Houthis control most of Yemen's Red Sea coastline, giving them significant capability to disrupt shipping there. But initially, these vessels continue to have very clear links to Israel. They might be owned by an Israeli shipping magnate, they might be operated by a major Israeli shipping line, But as many of these ships diverted, the Houthis expanded their targeting scope, targeting ships with less identifiable link to Israel or those bound for Israel calling to or coming from Israeli ports, irrespective of their country links. But then the Houthis escalated even further and shifted to what we're describing as an increasingly unpredictable targeting pattern. We've recorded about 22 confirmed incidents in the Red Sea. And our conservative estimate is that over half of those incidents have borne no clear, discernible link to Israel. And it's because of this increasingly unpredictable targeting pattern that many of those uh, container ships that Cormac was describing have initially paused their transits through the Red Sea and then made the, the active decision to divert around the Cape of Good Hope, taking the longer route around continental Africa. And... In the meantime, international naval forces continue to intercept missiles and drones bound for merchant ships, those that are still transiting the Red Sea. The US naval presence in the region, which has been significantly ramped up since the Israel-Hamas conflict began on the 7th of October, is doing most of the heavy lifting, but some of those missiles and drones continue to get through and have targeted vessels. And the Houthis have also attempted, on a number of occasions, to hijack vessels. But It's important to note, and as Cormac mentioned earlier, that these attacks are increasingly unpredictable, but they're not indiscriminate. Indiscriminate would imply that all vessels have this unequal chance of being targeted, but that's not borne out by the incident data that we've seen. There's not a blanket threat. The Houthis have refrained from targeting ships with obvious affiliation to Russia, China, of course their backers, Iran, but also the Saudis, for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. Awareness of political, country, and economic risks underpin your organization's ability to protect value and mitigate shocks. Whether you need consulting on a particular project or longer-term strategic, analytical, and forecasting resources, we can respond to your requirements face-to-face or through our online platform-based solutions. For more information, follow the link in the podcast notes. Thanks, Aaron. So, 
a nuanced picture there and perhaps not quite so alarming as it might seem at first sight. But nonetheless, we know many organisations are really concerned about what's going on in the Red Sea. Cormac, talk us through how we've been supporting clients and what sort of issues shipping companies need to think about. And of course, beyond that, the companies that are reliant on those shipping companies to get products and supplies from A to B. Yeah, so the first order of clients that we've been assisting are the ship owners themselves and and the kind of industry around that. So for every ship owner, there's also crew managers, there's also insurance underwriters, uh, there's also commodities traders who are moving their stuff on those ships. So that's that's the kind of immediate um, industry that are concerned about their assets and people being subject to attack. Um, and as Aaron mentioned, what we're doing with those clients is helping them make sale or no sale decisions, basically. So um, we have clients who own ships that are about to approach what we call a diversion point, uh, which might be somewhere uh, in the Arabian Sea. And they have to make a decision there whether they're going to take that longer route around South Africa or not. Um, and so we'll help them understand what the risk is to their vessels, specifically if they head into the Red Sea. And like I said in the opener, I, as you can see in the, the statistics behind the diversions, there's a difference in threat to tankers and bulk carriers versus container ships, for example. There's also a plethora of other ship types that will head th through the Red Sea that people outside the maritime industry won't, won't necessarily be familiar with. Um, you know, there, there's research vessels, there's anchor handling supply and support vessels, there's firefighting tugs, uh, there's all, all types of vessels and they will all have a varying level of threat to them. Um, and then obviously, as Aaron said, you know, if, if you're carrying an Israeli flag and you're headed to an Israeli port, you're, you're going to be at a pretty high risk as opposed to most other vessels. So that's the kind of the first order of help that we're providing our clients, Claudine. But then there's uh, kind of beyond that, we're We've already started getting inquiries about what this means for specific companies and their supply chains or general stability in the region. So we've had um, a couple of clients who, who basically rely on those bulk carriers, for example. Uh, they rely on bulk carriers to bring iron ore across the world to get melted into the products they create, right? So uh, they're worried that one of those bulk carriers could be hit by a missile and they'll lose an entire cargo. And you're, you're talking millions of tons of, of goods here. And they're trying to make a decision whether they need to pressure the ship that's carrying their goods uh, to divert, or whether they should take the increased cost of a diversion. So those are the second order of clients that we're helping. And then beyond that, there's also um, clients trying to understand just the geopolitical situation and what part the Red Sea is currently playing in regional geopolitics and the world. Um, because indeed what's happening in the Red Sea, it, it's inherently linked to Israel Hamas. And... As me and Aaron, as, as, as maritime specialists, we work every day with our Middle East analysts um, who are focused on what's happening with, between Israel and Hamas. But what we've always been keeping a close eye on since the beginning of the current conflict is the potential for regional escalation, the opening up of another front in that conflict that could just lead to further uh, spirals of escalation that could then lead to serious destabilization in the region. And that means every business in the region needs to be concerned. And that's why we have that kind of third order of client who's more interested in scenario planning for destabilization. And indeed, what's happening in the Red Sea is, is, is actually one of those triggers towards destabilization. But importantly, it's one of those triggers, many of the other triggers we haven't seen set off yet. It's, you know, I won't get into it here, I guess, but uh, it, it seems relatively contained what's happening in the Red Sea between 
the Houthis and the naval forces who are defending international shipping. Contained for now, at least, uh, perhaps. Aaron, what are we telling clients about the outlook? What's our take on what to expect next in the Red Sea specifically? So in December, the US announced a new multinational operation called Prosperity Guardian. And this was really about mounting a more organised protection of commercial shipping, operating under an existing Red Sea Naval Task Force than all of the individual US, British, French destroyers in the region intercepting Houthi-launched missiles and drones. But even at the time of recording this podcast, about one month on from the announcement, we still don't have any concrete tactical details about how the operation will actually work. Now, in our view, the operation will likely include either a coordinated convoy escort system, that's about clustering merchant ships together to sail with naval protection, or an area security system that attempts to provide, if you like, a dome-like defence over a wide corridor of commercial maritime traffic. Now, numerous media outlets indicate action by Prosperity Guardian when a missile or a drone has been intercepted. But it's not clear where the individual assets that have been doing their job since November stops and the coordinated Prosperity Guardian action starts. And of course, on the 12th of January, the US and UK, with support from several other allies, conducted airstrikes on more than 60 targets at 16 sites in Yemen, including weapons depots, air surveillance facilities, and coastal radar systems. This followed a week where both governments repeatedly signalled their intent to target Houthi assets, and a UN resolution passed on the 10th of January that provided an international legal predicate for the strikes. So these strikes mainly focused on degrading the Houthis' ability to target merchant shipping using missiles and aerial drones, which, as we've said, have been used in most attacks. Now, while they've likely temporarily degraded the Houthis' missile and drone capabilities, and will likely lead to a short lull in attacks, we assess that they won't be successful in the slightly longer term, halting further Houthi attacks. And that's because the group will likely recalibrate its tactics, and its supplies will likely be swiftly rebuilt, in part by its backer, Iran. And beyond the continued use of missiles and aerial drones, the Houthis have more maritime capabilities that they could deploy, and they'll likely increase their use of swarms of explosive-laden drone boats. These boats are designed to explode on impact with the target. They've already been deployed in Red Sea shipping lanes in early January, and they were previously used to target Saudi Arabian tankers during active hostilities with the country. However, in our view, the international naval assets, mainly the US, will likely intercept most of these attacks. And in addition to the use of drone boats, the Houthis could also deploy the more desperate tactic of sea mines. But this would mark a significant escalation and a change of strategic direction. And that's because of the indiscriminate threat that drifting sea mines pose. So in our view, any publicly revealed planting of sea mines would be just another step closer to closing off the waterways, which would trigger an even more forceful response than the 12th of January strikes by the US and UK. And that's because about 28% drop in Red Sea traffic has been mainly caused by an exodus of container ships serving Asia to Europe trade, while bulk carriers and tanker traffic has not really been affected. But the planting of sea mines would likely impact Saudi Arabia's oil exports from its west coast, as tankers avoid the region in light of any mine planting. And also, because mines are really difficult to spot in the dark, it would also reduce the number of operators willing to carry out night transit. And it's also possible 
that these will not be the last strikes, certainly by the US and maybe by the UK too. In his statement announcing the strikes, Joe Biden said that he wouldn't, quote, hesitate to direct further measures. In our view, a return to the higher rate of attacks as we've seen in late December and early January, irrespective of the use of missiles, drones, drone boats, could prompt further strikes on Houthi assets, including those on the coast used to guide and launch drone boats. And we also think that hijacking attempts, like the hijack on the Galaxy Leader, are possible. Less so by helicopter, because of the high risk any slow-moving helicopter would face from the naval awareness in the Red Sea, and more likely by a significant number of fast attack craft that we know the Houthis continue to have. But it's also important to note the Houthis' intent here. The movement has effectively earned recognition as an impactful semi-state actor, and it sees this ongoing conflict as a way to display and reinforce its leverage over Red Sea security. And of course, with many of the geopolitical issues that we look at day-to-day, Claudine, there's also a domestic angle to this. The Houthis are trying to gain domestic support ahead of a likely agreement of a ceasefire deal with Saudi Arabia, which has been in discussion since September 2022. That's likely to face short-term domestic dissent. And so continuing these attacks props up support among their core constituency. Um, if, I, if I may actually just read out verbatim the statement from U.S. Central Command on the 9th of January when the Houthis conducted to what to date was their largest wave of attacks on shipping, none of which actually got through and hit a ship. Um, because according to CENTCOM, I'll get past the abbreviations here, but uh, according to CENTCOM, 18 unmanned aerial vehicles, two anti-ship cruise missiles and one anti-ship ballistic missile were shot down by a combined effort of FA-18s from the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, the USS Gravely, the Laboon, the USS Mason and the United Kingdom's HMS Diamond. That is the amount of force that is deployed in the region to, to kind of dome defend international shipping. And it's been pretty bloody successful so far in um, in blunting those Houthi attacks. It seems that the Houthis have thrown what they can at this and their success has been somewhat limited. However, not to, you know, not to understate the impact it has had on commercial shipping diverting. We're talking about the global impact here, but uh, it should not be forgotten that probably the, the states of the Red Sea themselves are the ones that will suffer the most from what's happening. You know, um, countries like Egypt, which relies on the Suez Canal, which is still functioning. Djibouti, which is uh, incredibly reliant on its port as, as a nation. Other states in the region, including Saudi Arabia, Eritrea, you know, they, they need ships to service them. And they're currently in a situation where many of the shipping companies don't want to go there. So that will have a much higher impact on the Red Sea region itself, as opposed to anywhere else. Thanks, Cormac. That's a really good point. Let's zone out now and think from a global perspective about what other choke points there are. Um, Where else and what else might disrupt trade and shipping in the future? I've read that there's some very severe drought conditions that were already complicating passage through the Panama Canal. Um, Aaron, give us a sense globally of what else um, is posing disruption to trade and shipping at the moment. So one thing I've been struck by since working on maritime issues, Claudine, is just how adaptable the maritime industry is and capable of making very quick logistical shifts with really a minimal impact on our global supply chains and the prices that we as consumers all pay for goods. We saw that during the COVID-19 pandemic and the rerouting via South Africa that Cormac was mentioning is a, a really good example that despite all of the logistical challenges and increased costs, 
the maritime industry was able to adapt to the attacks in the Red Sea. But despite that adaptability, the maritime industry is still constrained by geography and a reliance on a handful of maritime choke points or bottlenecks through which shipping flows. We have the Turkish Straits leading to the Black Sea, of course a region of significant interest given the ongoing Ukraine-Russia conflict. Looking east, we have the Taiwan and Malacca Straits, and of course closer to home where we are here in London, we have the English Channel. And alongside the Suez Canal, there's also been disruption at the world's other major constructed canal in Panama. Panama has suffered severe drought, and because the Panama Canal requires water to push ships through it, many operators, facing significant backlogs and high costs, have decided to divert to the Suez route instead. So the response to the environmental issues at the Panama Canal has exposed a greater number of operators than would have otherwise been the case to the geopolitical tensions in the Middle East, as more operators were relying on the Suez Canal and therefore the Red Sea to get their goods to their final destination. And Cormac, this is something that we are often talking to clients about, which is this sense of a polycrisis, the idea that multiple maritime choke points around the world are under significant stresses, whether geopolitical or environmental. Yeah, you know, as I said in the, in the opener, um, the state of global shipping is often a reflection of the state of global stability and the global geopolitical state of affairs. All these straits that Aaron was just mentioning, they are all flashpoints that currently get caught up in what we can call grey zone warfare. The idea that you can exert yourself without without bluntly attacking your enemy as a way to show that you're willing to exert force there if push comes to shove. And so we're seeing that play out in many of the world's choke points, um, particularly since the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Black Sea clearly has become part of that conflict. Um, the western side of the Black Sea is essentially a war zone, but commercial ships still trade through it. The Baltic Sea is another choke point, uh, which is very important for Russia. It's very important for the Baltic states. It's very important for Europe. Uh, that has been a flashpoint which has been used in grey zone warfare. We've seen energy and communications infrastructure attacked without attribution. Other choke points where we could see geopolitical fragmentation creating flashpoints, we have the English Strait, the uh, GIUK gap, which is the Greenland, Iceland, United Kingdom gap um, of water to the north of Great Britain, uh, which is a critical passageway um, essentially for Russia to be able to break out into the Atlantic Ocean. It's always been a critical uh, choke point. The Eastern Mediterranean, even before the current uh, Israel-Hamas conflict, has been a geopolitical flashpoint because of contestation over oil and gas that lies beneath its surface. Uh, we've got the Malacca Strait in Southeast Asia, um, which could play a very, very critical role if we were to enter a worst case scenario uh, in the Taiwan Straits. So what we're seeing here is this idea of global geopolitical fragmentation and polycrisis is playing out directly in the maritime world because of these flashpoints. And that, uh, you know, as I mentioned, first order of our clients, our clients, it's the ship owners and everyone around them that's firstly uh, impacted, but that ultimately starts to impact everyone else down the chain. And I think there's a growing amount of attention on the possibility of seabed 
mining um, as the world looks to try and meet growing demand for critical minerals. We're going to cover that specifically in um, an episode of the Global Insight coming up later this year. So no, I don't think you guys are going to be wondering what to do with yourselves this year. Uh, I've got one final question for you. Uh, if you had to pick one issue which you think gets insufficient attention, but which is a serious threat to shipping, I'm particularly thinking perhaps over the longer term, what would it be? Cormac? My, my fear is one of these choke points uh, being very intentionally targeted in order to shut it down. Because right now we've seen some of those spurious headlines saying that the Red Sea is closed, but it's not. So you might read a media headline saying it's closed, but you're not actually feeling it. I mean, consumers in Europe are not actually feeling it right now, other than having to read newspapers. Um, the Suez Canal, when it was uh, jammed up by the Ever Given a, a few years ago, that, that caused some headlines and we did feel it in the consumer markets. It did cause a lot of disruption, uh, but it was one ship you know, stuck in the canal for a few weeks and it was an accident. My fear would be a threat actor like the Houthis with that kind of capability going to a place like the Suez Canal and intentionally attacking numerous ships in order to shut it down. If you shut down the Suez Canal extensively for a long period of time, we would really feel the disruption. Um, so that's my fear is choke points being targeted. Shortages of goods, prices going up. Absolutely. Thank you, Cormac. Aaron, do you want to add one? Despite all of these low likelihood but high impact events, such as a choke point being shut down, on a day-to-day -day basis, the biggest issues facing commercial operators are things like drug trafficking and stowaways that have huge implications for them. Increased costs, significant delays, reputational damage. These are the issues that day-to-day, -day, despite the headlines, that operators are facing. One of the legacy effects of the pandemic era that I think has affected the shipping industry as much as many others has been labour shortages and worker activism. Is that, a, is that a major problem now for the shipping industry or have some of those issues that we read a lot about a couple of years ago eased? Well, in terms of the question, what doesn't get enough attention in the maritime world, it really is seafarers' welfare. Uh, all this trade that we're talking about, everything that we rely on, that 80 to 90% of goods, we always say it moves on ships. Those ships are driven by people. You know, any, any big ship will have around 15 to 25 people um, that are necessary to make it move. There are so much examples of those people being horribly treated by their employers. Um, there's a lot of problems in terms of jurisdiction. Uh, because of the nature of shipping passing through many jurisdictions, uh, companies often can just kind of throw their hands up and not take responsibility for the fact that they've had seafarers on vessels for over a year uh, who haven't been able to get home and see their families. Uh, they're not even getting paid. Sometimes they're literally just abandoned on the ship uh, without any ticket to get home. Um, and th this is a huge issue within shipping. Uh, that nobody really knows about outside of shipping. And is that a threat to everyone else? Sadly, it's not because no one really pays attention to it. But if you want to worry about your supply chains and ESG and your ESG supply chains, for example, yeah. you should probably, yeah. probably be checking out the owners of the ships that are moving your goods. Yeah. Am I right in saying that the, uh, the, the, the ship that was um, targeted by the Houthis that uh, started this round of violence and tension in the Red Sea 
the Bahamas linked ship uh, that was hijacked and the crew that were kidnapped, they they haven't actually been released. They are still held hostage, uh, presumably in Yemen. Yep. That vessel, the Israeli-owned Galaxy Leader, was a, is really a microcosm of the international nature of shipping with a multinational crew. None of them were Israeli. Um, and of course, several governments with a stake in, have, in getting that vessel released. In fact, that vessel has become somewhat of a tourist attraction in the Houthi-controlled um, parts of Yemen with influencers and various people actually using it as a backdrop for videos on social media. And of course, we should never forget at the heart of this our seafarers who, whenever we record and whenever myself or Cormac or our maritime team record an incident of a missile strike, of a drone strike or a hijack, behind all of this are seafarers just doing their job. Perhaps we should talk a little bit more about the implications of climate change for shipping. Cormac, is there any issues that we haven't touched on which you think merit some comment? Oh, well, you know, climate change is number one on the agenda in the maritime industry. Um, we're here talking about security issues, but if you go to any maritime conference over the last few years, the number one topic to be discussed is the transition to more sustainable fuel for ships. It's an absolutely huge issue because ships have traditionally run on heavy fuel oil, uh, which is incredibly damaging to the environment. But, you know, shipping is also incredibly efficient at scale. So, um, a gigantic ship could be moving 20,000 containers, which, you know, to put that into reference, a train carrying that much would have to be around 70 to 80 kilometers long. That's how efficient shipping is. So that ship is going to emit um, a lot of greenhouse gases, but you, you have to understand the scale. Um, so the move to sustainable fuel is, is it's a huge engineering problem as well as a policy problem. And we won't get into the details, but it is really top of the agenda for the shipping industry. There's also generally climate change, what, what it's doing to shipping. Um, like Aaron, Aaron mentioned the Panama Canal. That is a climate-related issue. Um, shipping is struggling to get through the Panama Canal because of a climate-related issue. So um, it's very much top of the mind in the industry. And as well as the Panama Canal, We've also seen wildfires briefly shutting down the Turkish Straits. And of course, as Cormac mentioned, the March 2021 blockage of the Suez Canal. That was really increased winds combined with increased vessel sizes. And as we're always saying, shipping is one of the most efficient ways of getting goods from A to B. And so increasing the size of your vessels is a way to continue to facilitate trade. But Increased climate disruption combined with increased vessel sizes means that these kind of blockages will be more likely to occur in the coming years. Um, I always learn so much talking to the maritime team. It's been a real pleasure having you both on the Global Insight. Thank you very much indeed for joining. Cormac from Paris, it's been lovely to have you on. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Aaron, thank you so much for making your first appearance on the Global Insight. I hope there'll be another one soon. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you liked what you heard on this episode of The Global Insight, make sure to subscribe. And don't forget to check out our other podcasts as well, like Decrypt, featuring our experts from across the world making sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting business. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>